Welcome to the Soul Sessions Podcast. Deep dive into the causes and real issues underlying addiction, codependency, emotional eating, weight concerns, and the trance of unworthiness. Tune in weekly to befriend, nourish, and heal body, feelings, mind, and soul. And now, your host, soul-centered psychotherapist, trauma expert, and mind-body eating coach, Jody Gale. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Soul Sessions with Jody Gale podcast. This episode is sponsored by my new Facebook group, Trauma Warriors. I would like to acknowledge traditional custodians of the land on which my office is based and across which we virtually meet and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I extend that respect to all First Nations, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening to this podcast. Today, my guest is Sharon Martin, and we are going to be talking about how to heal from codependency. Sharon Martin, LCSW, is a licensed psychotherapist in San Jose, California, specializing in codependency recovery. Sharon writes the blog Conquering Codependency for Psychology Today and is the author of the CBT Workbook for Perfectionism and the forthcoming book, The Better Boundaries Workbook, to be published in fall 2021 if you're in the Northern Hemisphere and spring if you're down under. Welcome, Sharon. Thanks, Jody. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, we've known each other online for a long time. It was around the same time that I met Mari Lee, and we've worked out that that was about 10 years ago. So we've known oh each other for, <laughs> for a long time now. So it's so good to speak to you. Yes, same. Lovely. And I agree. Hard hard to imagine so much time goes by. I know. So would you just share about yourself and what brought you to this work? Sure. Well, I am a psychotherapist here in San Jose, California, which is Northern California near San Francisco area. And I am in private practice. And like you said, I do a lot of work around codependency issues. What brought me to this work is sort of an interesting story, at least for me, it sort of speaks to the way codependency interweaves it, itself into what we do in life. So both of my parents are both very much helpers, I would say. My mom was a psychotherapist as well, professionally. So certainly that had a big part in my decision to do this work. But my dad is also very active as a volunteer and social organizer in the community and and just does a lot in terms of helping people who are in need as well. And then the other sort of layer to that is that both of my parents have some amount of codependency, I would say, themselves, which I think is part of why they became, you know, such helping professionals mm. as well. And the same is true for me. But as we get into the conversation, you can unpack it a little bit more in general for people. But this is often what happens is that there is, you know, some sort of generational passing down of some of these codependent traits, just as we learn lots of other things from our parents, we can learn these ways of being as well. So that's certainly part of it for me. And I think, I think most therapists, at least part of the interest in doing the work in helping others is, is some amount of wanting to heal oneself as well. The interest in understanding how our mind works, how our human behavior, why we do the things that we want to do. So I think there was definitely a piece of that for me as well, wanting to figure out why I had such you know, perfectionist tendencies or struggle to set boundaries and so forth. And then 
I ended up marrying a man who at the time I had no idea, but he turned out to be an alcoholic and an addict. And he is now in recovery 12 years, which is fantastic. But, you know, that certainly brought a lot of my codependent issues to the forefront as well, I will say. The perfect match for each other. (laughs) (laughs) That is how it tends to go, right? Is Yes, we codependents tend to find somebody who needs to be saved or helped in some way. Exactly. So that kind of, you know, becomes an interplay between the two of us. That being an impetus for a lot of healing, a lot of personal growth, a lot of change, a lot of therapy for both of us to get to a place where we could have a healthy relationship that wasn't one based on those unhealthy dynamics. And again, we can get into more about what that looks like for codependence often, but really sort of more of a balanced relationship, I would say. That's kind of the short version of how I came to this work. You mentioned that about therapists too, and the majority of people come into the helping professions, whether it's therapy, nursing, maybe even teaching at some level, but to help other people, there's typically something else going on under there. And fortunately for therapists, we get talked to about that very early on and asked to have our own therapy. I'm not so sure about the other professions, but most of us sort of end up doing our own work because of that, don't we? Yes, yes. And it's interesting that you mentioned that, Jody, because I was just thinking about this before we got on this call that I have seen so many teachers and nurses in particular in my therapy practice around issues of codependency. And that's not to say that they do not by any means to say that everybody who's in a helping professional is struggling with codependency, but there is a tendency for people who have codependent traits to go into helping professionals, you know, become helping professionals, right? It's only natural that that's the career path that we're drawn to because that's our nature. That's where we feel good about ourselves is when we're doing something for somebody else. And of course, we get a lot of messages from society and family and other people that this is a good thing to do. And, you know, it is a good thing to do as long as we're not doing that at our own expense. And typically women as well. If we look back over history, it's good to be someone who is putting other people's needs before their own. <laughs> Absolutely. And so much. We'll get into later on, won't we? Yeah. Yeah. But that is so much of how girls are socialized is to be self-sacrificing to be doing for others. And again, Bray, where we get a lot of positive reinforcement for that, of course, we're going to do it. Yeah. So we've been talking about codependency already, but I wonder if it might be useful if you could help our audience understand for those who don't actually know what it is or would like a better understanding. Could you share with us what codependency actually is? (laughs) I will do my best. It's actually challenging. The term I think it became popular around the 1970s, 1980s, and it came out of addiction treatment. At this time, most of the addiction treatment was for alcoholic men, Mm. and treatment professionals started to pay attention to their wives and noticed that the wives were also having some issues related to this, so that they were playing a part in sort of what was going on and maybe partly what was getting stuck in the treatment And so they recognized that often the wives were doing some of these sort of enabling or fixing, rescuing, obsessive kind of behaviors that were part of the dynamic with the addict or the alcoholic. That's really what they were looking at at that point. So they realized, I think, both that the wives, the family, were also very much impacted by the addict's behavior, but there was this back and forth, this 
cycle that they were playing that the wives were sort of contributing to some of the challenges in working with the alcoholic. And so the, the term came from that, but it's really broadened since then. And yeah. we no longer look at it just in terms of somebody who is uh, married to or a family member of somebody who ha- is struggling with addiction. What we have realized over time is that there's a lot of similarities between families where there's addiction and where there are other kinds of dysfunctional dynamics. Sometimes it might be where there's a parent with a major mental illness that is untreated or there is abusive behavior or it could be any any number of things, but, you know, sort of ongoing trauma, crises, situations like that that are often going on that contribute to this. But I like to think about codependency in terms of the relationship that one has with other people and also the relationship that one has with themselves. Usually we focus on the way that codependents have relationships with other people and the way that that is sort of troubled and unbalanced. And like we've been talking about, there tends to be this outward focus on what are other people doing? I want to make sure that they are doing what I think is the best thing for them. So there's sort of a controlling element. There's also an anxiety, a worry element of it that I want to sort of control that situation so that I both that I know what's going to happen. And there's a sense of I want to try to limit maybe the harm that's going to come. And that might be some of that, you know, enabling kind of behaviors. It feels like I know what's going to happen if I do this. Maybe the alcoholic won't get into a car accident if I take away their keys or throw away the alcohol, that type of thing. So the relationships with others tend to be very unbalanced in that element where all of the focus is on what is the other person doing? How can I take care of them, change them, fix them? And the self tends to be ignored or definitely put at the end of that list. And so the relationship with the self tends to be, you know, I would say we we tend to feel inadequate or incapable, that that fear that I mentioned. So the self is very devalued. So those end up being two different components when we, we get into talking about the recovery. It's both figuring out how to have healthy relationships with other people, but it's also very much about how can I have a healthy relationship with myself? How can I feel good about myself? How can I know myself? Because so much of that focus on others also means that I kind of lose touch with who I am as a person, that I don't have such a strong individual identity. I might even you know, see myself as how am I connected to others? I'm somebody's wife or somebody's or or professional identity kind of tends to take over rather than that. Like I said, that sense of like, I know what matters to me. I'm clear about my values. I'm clear about what I like to do, what my goals are. All of that gets, you know, pushed to the back because there's this focus on somebody else generally. And the other thing that I, I like to mention about codependency is that it's not an all or nothing. So oftentimes we can see a a list of codependent traits and it's not something that we need to go through a list and check it off and say, if I have, you know, 10 traits, then that means I'm codependent. 
And this is, you know, the other piece of it that is challenging is that there isn't a standard definition. There isn't a standardized list of traits that everybody has endorsed and said, hey, this is the criteria for better or for worse. But I really look at it as a continuum. And so some people listening may really identify with a lot of what we're talking about. And other people may say, oh, a little bit of that's familiar. I I see a little bit of that in myself or I have at some point in time. So I think you just want to kind of look at it in terms of, you know, people have differing amounts of these traits and also thinking about how much difficulty does any of this cause? for one. Because obviously, if you're experiencing some of this, but it really doesn't feel like it's negatively impacting you, you're probably not going to feel real motivated to change it, right? That's just, you know, human nature, I think. But when we have a lot of codependent traits and they're really showing up in a lot of different places for us, then we can start to feel like things are out of control, right? And we see this is really impacting me at work and home and so forth. Yeah. Yeah, so how will they show up? I mean, I I remember back when I was, I think it was probably my first relationship, actually. I'd moved to New Zealand to try and clean my act up a bit. And I had my first long-term relationship. I I was like a crazy woman. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I had no idea what I know now to be codependency, which I also know the, the underlying causes of that too now. But back then, I just... I was obsessive about the relationship. I was very controlling in the relationship. So for someone out there, how would they recognize and how else does it show up in someone's life? Yeah, well, those are great markers already that you're talking about. And you're right. Often you sort of feel like things are sort of swirling, like there's almost sort of a tornado <laughs> that's that's forming. All of this energy that's it's being put out and very little that's coming back in as well. So you're right. There's often an obsessive quality to relationships, as we've been talking about. There's such a focus on what other people are doing and wanting to make sure that they're okay. Sometimes we may notice codependency. Honestly, when somebody points it out to us, I mean, it could be that a friend might say, oh, I'm a little concerned about this new relationship that you're in, how much time you're spending or the way that you're giving up so many Things that used to be important to you, whether it's friends or family or hobbies, things you used to spend a lot of time or have interest in. And again, that's sort of that self kind of falling away because the other person is more important. So a lot of time and energy may be spent on other people and not very much on ourselves. The other thing that comes to mind is there may be some difficulty actually trusting and being close with other people, yeah, which is sort of an interesting piece because you're very relationally focused in some ways. But again, that there's so much focus on how the other person is feeling that often as codependents, we don't really have a good sense of how we're feeling or what we need. And so if you don't know for yourself what you're feeling or what you need, it's obviously that's very difficult to express. It's hard to be vulnerable with your feelings and your needs. And often there's a sense that both of the other person might not be able to meet those needs or even that they may be rejected. That that tends to be you know, a pattern that a lot of people with codependent traits have had really painful rejections mm. in their lives. 
And of course, it's only natural that if that has been an experience that you've had, that you will want to try to avoid having that happen again. I kind of describe it as we sort of put on a facade sometimes and we try to be that perfect person, perfect wife, perfect girlfriend. Yeah. Did you watch Desperate Housewives when it was on? Yes. Okay. It reminds me. Ago. It reminds me of Bree Vanderkamp. <laughs> sure, sure. Right. We kind of get into that perfectionism and yeah. people pleasing, and yeah. it's like I I need everybody to like me because underneath, right, there's some insecurity, there's some sense that I'm really not good enough, I'm yeah. not up to the standard, and if people find out, right, if I express or let people see those inadequate or just normal mistakes that we make, normal flaws that we all have. There's a sense, right, that we will be judged very harshly and there may be a very negative response from other people. So we're very guarded in, in that way. That's reminding me as you as you say that, because what I went to thinking about was the next question around what does it feel like I love that question. It's not one that people ask as often about codependency or maybe about a lot of things, but here's what I got. I had three different pieces and of course they all do overlap, but one of the feelings I think is the powerlessness, the feeling that everything is out of control. And then the second feeling, which is very much connected to that is fear. It's very scary when your life feels out of control, when you don't know what's going to happen. And again, when we're talking about people having these feelings in adulthood, generally they're very reminiscent of feelings that you had in childhood, right? If you grew up in a family that was chaotic, didn't really function very well, there's often a feeling of fear and powerlessness. And of course, when we're children, we don't have as much control. We don't have as much power as we do as adults. And we want very much to try to control things. So we get into the controlling behavior to try to get rid of, to feel less of that fear and anxiety. And then the other feeling that that I think maybe people are not quite as aware of is there's a lot of shame that comes with this. As I mentioned, there's that real deep feeling that there's something wrong with me, not only that there's something wrong with what I'm doing. Sometimes people will have a sense that other people would disapprove of perhaps this relationship that I am in, or if they knew that my partner was drinking this much, or that if he was abusive to me, clearly I don't want people to know that because they would be disapproving. They tell me to leave something like that. But I think even more than that, there's a shame about who I am as a person. And this is really tough because as most of us know, the shame really keeps us separate. It keeps us away from other people, especially at a time when we are so much in need of support and love and acceptance. But shame, it just holds us back because again, there's fear that's part of the shame that if people were to find out, here we go again, right? If people were to find out who I really am, they would not accept me. They wouldn't love me. I'll be alone. Absolutely. And I, I remember back when I was in my first sort of a lot of therapy for my eating disorder and addiction, I remember having this image of feeling like inside I was like a putrid apple. And mm-hmm. 
that if someone actually saw who I really was, that they would leave me. And of course, that's when you're thinking about codependency, these like putting these two together is like this constant hustle, like always hustling to try and be someone that I wasn't just in case someone found out who I really was. Yeah, that really resonates a lot with me. I think that's such a common fear, common feeling that I need to protect who I really am because it's not okay. Mm. Yeah, it really speaks a lot about, I think, the true nature of codependency. And again, that it's not just about how we're interacting with others, but that's about the relationship with yourself, right? And really feeling, yeah, that there's something not okay about you. And I think there's also maybe a piece that's more than... It's very painful, of course, as I was saying, to feel like somebody might not love you or somebody might leave you. But I also think there's an element of not really feeling like you're going to be able to cope with that. Yeah. Like if something, of course, it would be devastating, but like that I couldn't recover, I think, is the, the feeling that I had about that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's terror. It becomes sort of terrifying, doesn't it? And I suspect when we look at the next question around what are the root causes of codependency? Yeah. So what we've been talking about trauma is really the root of it. For some people, it's very obvious. I think what the traumas, I don't think most of us just have one trauma. And really for most people, when we talk about codependency, we're really talking about childhood traumas, developmental traumas, yeah. things that were ongoing as we've been, you know, chatting about, you know, sort of dysfunctional families in a general sense. But there were also a number of people who definitely would identify as codependent, who look back at their childhood and say, you know what, I don't see any real glaring dysfunction, not to that extent where there was abuse or addiction or something, like I said, sort of more obvious. And this is the piece where we kind of think about the generational effects of trauma. But chances are, if you could trace it back, you would find it maybe in the next generation or the one before that. So it's there. The thing about generational trauma is there's so much shame around it. People don't talk about it. So often there are things that are impacting us that we're not even aware of, that were things that, you know, happened in our parents' childhoods, for example. I'm actually thinking, and it's quite relevant at the moment with COVID, a story that my mother told me. Her mother was hospitalized for a year, TB. Mm. And so people who are, no offense, but anti-vaxxing and not remembering how traumatic this was, because I think my mum was four and for the whole year, she had to go and stand at the window at the bottom of the hospital and wave to her mum every Sunday. And just because obviously the mum was in isolation. So when I think about our own sort of family history with these issues, I think, Mm. oh my God, from an attachment perspective and developmental trauma perspective, how challenging that must have been. Yeah. And I think that's a great example to share as well, because it's a different kind of trauma. It's not though what we've sort of been talking about, this sort of dysfunctional family, but it it was a medical reason that her mother could not be there for her, but absolutely very traumatizing. A four-year-old can't possibly understand 
why her mother can't be there for her. It feels like abandonment to a young child. In our adult mind, we can see that's not what it was at all. I'm sure her mother absolutely wanted to be there. And it was agonizing for her mom as well. Mm, absolutely. But yes, when we talk about trauma, that absolutely is um developmental trauma to not have your mom there and to have to wave through the glass once a week. Just for our audience, we've both used the term developmental trauma. From my perspective, that's what I always call trauma. And then there's so many other, there's complex trauma and attachment trauma and this kind of CPTSD. I mean, for me, when I think about developmental trauma, it's the trauma really the arrested development of the self for me. How would you describe developmental trauma just for our listeners? I tend to think of it as something that was ongoing in a child's experience that overwhelmed their ability to cope with it, to understand it. Yeah. As opposed to like, sometimes there are sort of one-time traumas, yes. your house burned down. That is absolutely traumatic, but it's a different kind. That's an isolated incident versus when we're talking about the developmental, it's something that happened while you were developing, but it yeah. tends to also be something that was an ongoing situation. And I like to think about codependency as an attempt to cope in the best way that we knew how. And I find this to be a helpful way to look at it because it tends to feel a bit better than, oh, this was a sort of, you developed all these terrible coping skills. <laughs> we get to adulthood and we can say, oh, these aren't working so well for me anymore. But at the same time, if you can think about yourself when you were young, going through these traumatic experiences, chances are you can see that they were actually they were pretty ingenious in yeah. a lot of ways. But you really figured out the best way that you could. Now, children have very limited resources. Tangibly, right? We don't have much to work with. We don't have much life experience. We don't even have them, you know, advanced of cognitive skills. So the fact that, you know, we figure out the best way to handle our parents' rage is to make ourselves as small and unseen as possible is pretty darn smart. There's a lot of sort of, and look, we're moving on from like you were talking about earlier, that 80s sort of rehab kind of language in many ways, aren't we? I think you know, honestly, it's a, a long time ago. But, you know, we're talking about attempts to get our needs met, aren't we? And in terms of not pathologizing codependency, it's an attempt to to soothe, to, to get our needs met. And I'm thinking about women in my practice and obviously in in my written work that I'm speaking to who suffer with codependency, so that they are often caught in the caretaking, rescuing, fixing, often since they were children. A lot of them are parentified children, so they've had to be the adult, and it's always been about someone else's needs. So how do they begin to heal when they've suffered early childhood trauma, been caught in this, I guess, in psychosynthesis, we would call them identifications. We often start up what we call a part or a subpersonality, so the rescuer or the people pleaser. How do they, how, how would someone begin to heal? Well, I tend to think that baby steps are the best approach. Sometimes when we realize that something isn't working so well for us, there's a tendency to want to just change everything all at once, right? To kind of reinvent <laughs> ourselves and like stop all of those things that, that I don't want to do anymore. But that doesn't tend to work very well. 
And I, I also tend to remember that a lot of these behaviors are things that we've been doing for many years, and they took many years for them to be ingrained to the level that they are. Mm -hmm. So we need to take little steps. We need to make small changes. And sometimes people are surprised that even some fairly small changes can lead to some pretty big results, or they can at least be stepping stones to other things as well. So I would start with that is that we don't need to change everything all at once. One thing that we might think about is how can I bring a little bit more balance to my life. Mm -hmm. So by that, I mean a little less focus on everybody else and a little more focus on myself. And if you think about it in terms of finding some balance, again, I think that can be a helpful way to look at it because we don't need to shift so dramatically to a place of feeling like all I'm thinking about is myself because that's not what we're going for. It's never going to feel good to those of us that tend to be caretakers to completely stop taking care of other people. Yeah. We want to feel like we can do that, but that we can also take really good care of ourselves. And I think that's really possible as well, that we can do both but it takes a real conscious effort to make that shift. So sometimes it takes some planning. It might mean being really intentional about doing some things for yourself. And sometimes it, it even means kind of slowing down, just spending some time with yourself. So many of us are just busy doing things, not just caretaking, but just doing life. That how often do we actually spend time quietly reflecting, paying attention to what we're thinking, what we're feeling, what our body sensations are telling us, trying to name some of our feelings. Those are things that are not common practices for most people, but can be really helpful. And they don't need to be really time consuming either. I, I think you can get a lot out of maybe 15 minutes of that to start with um, and start seeing what comes up, seeing if you can identify some feelings and then maybe some needs. I tend to think of self-care as, or at least one, one aspect of it is to think of that as a way of meeting some of our needs. So we need to know what the need is that I'm trying to meet, right? If I'm tired, that's going to lead me to a different kind of self-care than if I discover I feel lonely, right? Then I need to do something else to meet that need. But like I said, that really takes um, some time to build up a practice of noticing that because for most of us, we are not used to that. We're used to paying attention to what other people need and what they feel. But the good thing is that it's really a very similar skill set. And so this is what I often tell people is that if you're good at taking care of other people, you know how to take care of yourself. You just need to practice it. And sometimes it just it feels really uncomfortable. So I'm just going to interject there, Sharon, and say if I'm pretending I'm a client now, but that's selfish. To take care of myself would be selfish. Well, we all know... The old, you know, adage of put your own oxygen mask on or you can't pour from an empty cup. And there's truth in that. And so sometimes that can be helpful for people who are, you know, giving so much is to remember that if I don't take care of me, pretty soon I am going to have nothing left 
to give. The other way I think we can think about it, it's like a bank account or you can't just keep making withdrawals, right? You got to put stuff in. So taking care of yourself is a piece, right? So taking care of yourself is essential going to take care of others. And like we said, that is valuable. That is important. Nobody is asking you to stop taking care of other people altogether. Um, so, so we do need to take care of ourselves and maybe the feeling like it's important just for the sake of yourself is going to come later. I think sometimes if we can get ourselves to do the actions, even if we don't quite feel right about it, that can be a place to start. We don't necessarily have to feel like I deserve this. Like I said, I mean, that sort of sounds like a great thing that I'd love for people to get to, to feel like, hey, I deserve to be taking a nap because I'm tired, just like, you know, anybody else does. But if that's not where you're at, that's okay. You can still try to figure out how you feel what you need and how to meet the need just as as almost sort of a formula. Mm Mm-hmm. And again, baby steps. This doesn't have to be that you're doing it perfectly, that you're doing it all of the time. Think about how you can do just a little bit more than what you're doing now. Yeah. I think one of the things too that I remember and that I see a lot is that when someone's whole identity has been wrapped up in caretaking or rescuing, it can be quite scary to let go of that way of being, can't it? I use the term disidentify. I notice children who have had maybe parents who have been um, suffering with alcoholism, they've often been like that since they were four, five, six years old, maybe even younger. I think it can be quite scary for people. Who am I if I'm not rescuing people or caretaking? It's quite a, a journey, I think, back to, and that's why when you said small steps, it's quite a journey back to developing that healthy sense of self. Yeah, that's a great point, Jody. Because so much of our self-worth is coming from doing for other people. And that's also why we don't want to think about just taking all of that away. But I tend to think about a lot of things as like, let's just moderate it a little bit, right? And that again, that idea of like having a little bit more balance with it. Not that we are going to do any of it. We can find some space for both to exist. Right. And, And people, again, they can spend some time it's a process of reconnecting with themselves for sure. But just trying to, sometimes it's, it's helpful to remember back to what you used to like to do. That can be a good place to start. You may or may not like or have interest in the same things that you did, you know, 20 years ago. But sometimes it's a good place to start with it. We're just trying to experiment a little bit and see what piques your interest. Um, one of my things with people is what would it be like to sort of go to the movies on your own? And I, I must admit, I used to, <laughs> I remember saying to my husband when he was working full time and I was just building my practice when we moved home to Australia. And I used to laugh and say, I saved you um $50 today. And he said, oh yeah, how did you do that? And I said, I went to the movies on my own. <laughs> I used to love it because I didn't have to negotiate what we were going to watch. And, you know, it's dating yourself in a way, isn't it, for a while? And what would I actually like to go and see? Where would I like to go? What would I like to do? But even getting to that is quite a journey, I think, for some people, isn't it? So It is. And so you were talking about self-care before, Sharon, and I know that I saw on your website you had some some steps to prioritize self-care. Are you up for sharing what the, those are or have I? Sure, sure. I can walk us through a few of those. I'll try to do it quickly here. 
So one place to start, I think, is really to just try to give yourself permission to do it. Because if it's not something that you feel good about, or maybe you're not like feeling like you should do it, or you're allowed to do it, is to actually put that into words or out loud or in writing, whichever you prefer, but just actually say to yourself, you have permission to do fill in the blank, whatever for yourself today. Almost as if somebody outside of you is giving you that permission, but you can give it to yourself. And then, as I mentioned earlier, actually setting aside some time, scheduling time for yourself can be really important, especially if you have a very busy schedule. We all know that if we don't put it on the calendar, it tends to not happen or we're often more willing to cancel on ourselves. So make a commitment and then hold yourself to it. That's important, just like a commitment to anybody else would be. And then one other really important aspect of self-care is setting boundaries, which we could probably spend a lot of time just talking about that. Yeah. But the way that it connects with the self-care here is that You know, boundaries are limits that we are saying or setting for ourselves. And we all only have a limited amount of time, energy, money, any of our resources. And so we need to make decisions about how we're going to spend those resources. We can't just, you know, kind of willy-nilly just do everything or choose based on some arbitrary criteria. And often what we're doing is we're using the criteria of what do other people want us to do? What's important to them? So there has to be a process of thinking about, well, what matters to me? And I need to protect that with my boundaries, right? So that might be how I spend my time or how I spend my money, who I'm going to spend my spend time with. So I am making choices by saying no to the things that are not in that priority list so that I can say yes to the things that matter the most to me so that I can spend my time, energy, money there. The other thing that is a tough one is asking for help. And again, this is one that codependents have a real hard time with. We are very much people who want to do things ourselves. And again, there's that element of perfectionism and thinking maybe people will judge us and the mindset of we should be able to do all these things ourselves. But again, we can take very small steps towards asking for some help, really thinking about a a small ask and somebody that you're pretty sure would be willing to help so that we can build on that. And and this is an element of self-care again, right? Because it's unrealistic for us to expect that we're going to do everything all ourselves and never need anything or ask anybody for help. And just on that, I mean, that can even be, I, I know at the moment, I, I actually broke my foot in the school holidays, mm. uh, being an idiot skateboarding. <laughs> Don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> and then going back to the beginning of term time, that first couple of weeks when you get back to school after school holidays, it's just so full on and all the notes coming home from school. And I think there's a mm-hmm. tendency for parents and especially mothers to be without pathologizing, being a bit martyry, like I'm doing everything. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I uh, started to order HelloFresh, the meals that come in mm-hmm. bags and it's all portioned out for you. And just for that first sort of three weeks, it was just such a, I'm glad I'd ordered it because then when I broke my foot, it was like, oh, <laughs> thank God I don't have to go to the supermarket. So delegating can come in lots of different ways, can't it? It, just, it doesn't mean necessarily just people we know. We can resource yeah. house cleaning or within our sort of whatever we can afford. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, it's a great point, right? That it doesn't have to be a personal ask, a personal favor, but right, that there's lots of resources out there that we can use to get help in different ways. I think the other piece here is when we try to move away from some of that rescuing, controlling, is recognizing that not everybody wants the help that we're trying to give them. Um, And it's, again, it's a hard one because this really gets at our discomfort, our anxiety of not being able to control a situation and get somebody to do what we think they should be doing. It's sort of an effort and futility to keep, you know, pushing somebody to do something that they have let us know very clearly that they don't want to do or they're not interested in our advice or our suggestions. But I think, again, if we can pay attention to that, I mean, both, I think it frees up some time and energy for us to maybe help people who really do want to be helped because there are lots of, you know, people out there who need and actually want help. But it also is a good reminder, I think, that if not helping, not doing the rescuing, fixing, controlling is bringing up a lot of anxiety for us, that's a good sign that that isn't, that there's something internal going on that I need to figure out how to deal with that myself. The solution really isn't in in these external behaviors trying to get the other person to do something. Well, that's um, and, and I th- I think that one as you're starting to talk about it, I'm I'm just thinking about people who come to therapy and who are in um, relationships, for example, where the other person does have an addiction or a behaviour that's really not conducive to a healthy relationship. Just how painful that is! Actually, recognizing that it doesn't matter. What Mm -hmm. I do, I absolutely have no control over that person and I can't make them change. Very painful. It's extremely painful and it can also be extremely freeing Yes, when you kind of get to the other side and realize this isn't my problem to solve. Yeah. Because then again, we're able to move away from the sheer frustration of trying to make something be different that is not in our control to change. It's rather maddening. And I think that that's, again, one of those signs that I think we were talking much earlier about what are some of those signs that we've got some codependency going on. I would say that's actually a, a big one, is feeling yeah. extremely frustrated and resentful that you're not able to get somebody to do something. Oh, it's crazy making. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and then my my final tip on, on the self-care was really just trying to remember that even just doing a little bit of it can be better than none. Again, as I mentioned, we don't need to do all of it all of the time. We don't need to strive for perfection here. A little bit of taking care of yourself is most certainly better than none. Yeah, perfect. So I know, Sharon, you've written your book on perfectionism, but obviously when we were preparing for this interview, I see that you've got a new book coming out. Could you please tell our audience a little bit about how your work might be useful for women listening today and both of your books, I guess? Sure. Well, the book about perfectionism, the CBT workbook for perfectionism, it's really a book about self-acceptance about ways that we can change our self-critical voice, the unrealistic expectations that we set for ourselves. And it uses cognitive behavioral therapy and also a lot of self-compassion and mindfulness Uh to really help people increase the feelings of self-acceptance, 
being able to take care of themselves, like we've been talking about, and creating some of that balance in their thoughts, their actions, their relationships. And then the new book that I have coming out is going to be a book all about setting boundaries. So it goes into lots of details and, and, a, and a concrete plan that people can use to figure out what boundaries they need to set and how to set those and hold to them. Perfect. So when's that release? It is due out November 1st. November the 1st. Great. I think people, you know, are going to get so much out of listening to you talk and you've, I mean, I've been reading your blog for years. I think I've even contributed once or twice many years ago, a Mm -hmm. quote here or there, but, um, you know, it's such a great resource at the Psychology Today and your website. So do you have a mailing list or how can people find you? Can you tell them a little bit about that? Yeah. If you go to my website, which is livewellwithsharingmartin.com. You'll find everything. There are, you can sign up for the mailing list and there's a lot of free resources. I have like a whole little digital library of, you know, like worksheets and some meditations and journal prompts and lots of stuff like that that people can use to kind of kickstart or support some of their recovery and the blogs there and all the other stuff there. So head on over there. Okay, perfect. And I will add the link and your resources in the show notes. So look, our time has come to an end and I just want to say it's really great to talk to you and look forward to seeing more of your work and I can't wait to see your Boundaries book. I've I've actually struggled to find it. There is one Boundaries book that I know of, but I think it's from Context. So, um, you know, (laughs) when I read that, I thought, oh, great. You know, I'm really looking forward to reading that. So yes, agreed. We needed one that was a little bit more... A lot of neutral in its approach. So yeah, I mean it's a, it's an okay book, but it's obviously that doesn't speak to everyone. So always better to have uh, a bit of Switzerland, I think. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Sharon, thank you so much for coming. I've loved talking to you. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. For the show notes go to the soulcenter.online forward slash soul sessions forty healing from codependency. Thanks for listening and bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Soul Sessions podcast. Love this episode? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. To learn more about how you can befriend your body, feelings, mind, and soul, get Jody's free 65-page ebook at thesoulcenter.online. Until next time.